it is the most heartbreaking, devastating thing I think I've ever seen. And we have a pandemic that we're dealing with right now where rent and payments, they've been given forbearance, but those days are gonna come due. I'm deeply concerned with what we're going to be seeing on the backside of this. The lead fraud investigator who said, you know, the office supply that they need most in this company is white out because everybody's making up stories to get the property sold. So you had these people being intimidated into buying homes they knew they couldn't afford. In a world of elite criminals, only people of elite character can protect our system. This is the new Untouchables. All right, this is Steve Grumbine with Real Progressives, and we are in part three of our ongoing series, The Untouchables. Folks, we have Lori Noble, we'll be starting with, who is an appraiser, and she is someone who can give us the inside machinations of the appraisal fraud and the predation within the appraisal community, within the way the structure of fraud took appraisals and elevated the assets and really created the environment for fraud. It created all the necessary conditions for fraud. And it was also the early distant warning that told us about fraud. Had we listened to the appraisers, this would have never happened. And part two of this episode will also be Michael Winston, who's a countrywide executive whistleblower who saw things ground level and blew the whistle on it. And we'll be talking to him in the second half of this episode. So without further ado, let me introduce my guests. Right now we have Patrick Lavelle, who was the star, the voice of the series The Con. We also have Eric Vaughn, who was the writer and the guy who put it all together. And then we have Lori Noble. And with that, let me bring on Lori Noble. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. I want to hit on the guys who wrote this before we dive into your story, but I just really want to thank you for your hard work and everything that you've done to bring the spotlight to this. So with that, Eric, why don't we start with you? Tell us, what about this particular episode is so important to you? Okay. I don't want to say too much because I want to get straight to Lori here. But I think the biggest thing to understand is that the independent appraisal process is critical to a functioning lending system. And that what Lori and other appraisers like her did was help make sure that proper lending was happening. And when that gets subverted through various means, then it basically creates trouble everywhere else down the line. And one of the other important things is that in the run-up to the collapse, they were probably one of the first and most excellent warnings of what was about to happen because they were experiencing the duress coming from lenders to hit a particular number as opposed to the proper appraisal process setting the value of the house. And so anyway, with that, I'll go ahead and let Patrick chime in before we let Lori explain the whole deal for us. Well, I appreciate that both Steve and Eric. And I just want to say thank you to Lori 
Lori is near and dear to my heart because I think we've both come from the same generation. We've seen a lot of this evolve, really, most of our adult lives. And Lori has been a professional in this space since particularly the late 90s, when a lot of the deregulation and the policy changes took place that Lori was able to see in the trenches, her professionalism. And she brought a degree of integrity to her craft that was literally chipped away at throughout the last several decades. And as this evolved, and given where Lori was in this whole process, like everybody else in terms of this program, Steve, she exemplifies the notion of an untouchable. She exemplifies integrity, courage, and a commitment, not just to the craft of professionalism, but to her clients and people as a whole. And we'll get a little bit more involved with what that means in terms of what her sacrifice was. But I can assure you, as you move into this, Steve, to understand, again, what we're revealing is that at every step of the way of this incredible con, were heroic people who were professionals who did everything in their power to prevent what took place. And on that note, Lori, why don't you give us an overview of how you look at what created the con? Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, guys. It's great to be with Eric and Patrick again and meeting these new people too. Thank you, Mr. Black, again. I guess I'm going to reflect a little bit on 2000 and the repeal of Glass-Steagall. That was my initial trigger, even though I was very young in the business. I didn't realize exactly what it meant. And with the signing of Gramm-Leach-Bliley, it was sold to us as a matter of privacy so that information could legally cross state lines. Enter interstate banking, and that was the big change. And even early 2000, I got with my colleagues and peers and we asked because I could sense what was going on, but I couldn't quite pinpoint it. And between 2000 and 2010 was just an ultimate carnage of the real estate market. And what I'm reflecting on from 2010 until now is that we're still dealing with the real issues because they were never properly addressed. And I'm looking at the economy and the leadership and a lot of people, you know, working to solve very, very complex and difficult problems. And they could really lean back on something like a Glass-Steagall to help correlate and bring things in a more uniform and manageable way. And in the appraisal space, we have no independence any longer. It's really been taken away. And this is something that we're working diligently to, you know, educate the consumer and working with lenders. And information like this is going to be very beneficial to people and individuals when they're making their biggest decisions, you know, of purchasing a home. What is so important about the independence of an appraiser? Bill Black really defined mortgage control fraud. When I finally got that definition and understood and researched it, it really identified so many of the infractions that appraisers are under. And mortgage control fraud is the element that takes away independence from the appraisers to function and serve the customers. There are literally too many hands in the fire. 
and appraisers represent a very small number of people. So comparatively, the influence that we have is much smaller, you know, compared to realtors or, or the banks. But that said, we're on the forefront of change and we see change. It is in our DNA to identify it, problems. The problem is that we're a small group. So when we speak of it, it doesn't get the attention that it's garnered and should be deserved. But the general idea, maybe just tell us like in the most basic terms, what an appraiser's position is in the process. This though goes into the area of who is the client, the intended user, and who non-intended users are when it comes to mortgage appraisal. And we really need to grasp that appraisals are prepared for lenders and not for individuals. So the lender is contracting that appraiser to prepare the appraisal for them with their lender overlays. The appraiser is to be allowed to function completely independently without influence, bribery, extortion from anyone involved in the transaction. We have Dodd-Frank and a plethora of laws that rolled out after the crash. It has ultimately led to even more problems. It hasn't answered all the problems. So, Rory, let me ask you, in context of where you live and where you practice, tell us about how that relates to predatory lending and just fraud there. I'm going to speak very personally and very candidly at this point. And I believe that the concept of local banks being involved in the local communities with people who work at the lenders representing the fabric of that community, right? People. So everyone works together. We don't have that any longer. And I'm from an area that was very you know, strong in that level where the brick and mortar bank, you knew that banker. Everybody knew that banker. Everybody in town knew that banker. So that banker did the right thing. Fast forward to where we went to after the repeal of Glass-Steagall and working in my hometown, I suddenly went from working with local people to people I don't know, and they don't know my area. And that is the evolution that's occurred. So now banking in the mortgage realm functions at this 50,000 degree view. People are trying to figure out problems and saying we need to get down on a granular level again and work in our communities again. But we don't have a banking environment that facilitates that. So appraisers have evolved through this process and have taken a lot, a lot, a lot of big hits on the backside of it too. So, Lori, I'm going to chop in here just really quick from a predatory standpoint. You live in West Virginia. Right. And this is going to be a national audience. And what we're trying to convey here through the Pecora Files, and of course, like you being somebody who walks and Bill Black's drumbeat, we came to understand that unless you lay out the facts to a national audience to create a connection with people have experienced, we can't overcome the corruption that's actually choked the system. And so in West Virginia, 
it probably wouldn't surprise people, and I want to get your experience here to the public, that it was literally a target of predation because you guys had experienced a massive loss of jobs in West Virginia, the coal industry, and so forth. And suddenly, fast forward to this time era, Countrywide was doing mortgages and lending like crazy. Can you compartmentalize that, put that together? I can. It was the craziest phenomenon I'd ever seen. And people, you know, intrinsically interested in the economy, when you see things like that, you recognize it, you know it. So countrywide in West Virginia during the run-up, we had a lender who was one of the top producers in the country for countrywide. The reason being in my market, and it still applies today, is that people have a lot of equity in their homes and they were genuinely targeted to take that equity and I guess that's how the inflated appraisals occurred. I had an instance with Countrywide. I did an appraisal and plainly stated this property does not pass secondary market requirements and it was on the tail end of them hanging on to their seat I guess. They pushed it through. And within two months, that borrower defaulted on that appraisal. And I got sued for that. This is what's going to really resonate with you in terms of Lori's story and moving forward to Michael's. West Virginia had completely lost its working class. It had, since the 80s, destruction of the coal industry, a lot of offshoring, outsourcing. So the working class was no longer. So suddenly, here comes this opportunity of these lenders who are in the shadow sector based on what you just learned from our friends in Ohio, and they're lending like crazy. One of the largest producers of predatory loans, we don't know they're predatory at this stage, is happening in West Virginia. People who don't really know a lot about sophistication within the real estate market are now being offered so much more than they could have ever realized, but for a specific outcome. Lori, can you connect? the collapsed working class of Virginia to this predatory lending? Fortunately, we didn't experience an extreme downturn like so many of the other states did. I can't say that. But I'm going to say that that's because of the wherewithal with a lot of the appraisers here holding, you know, steadfast. The target, though, that is on rural America, and it isn't just West Virginia, is immense because the lenders know that there is an enormous amount of equity that they can capture from those markets. They have taken it to the degree that one state, you know, totally allows for appraisal waivers. That's how rural it is, and that's what they've pressed for. It's not going to lend well to accurate data. This data is not getting fleshed out and documented properly. So there's going to be some serious distortions on the backside of this, too. Can you talk about the Cuban poll? After COVID, I'm deeply, deeply concerned with what's going to happen on the backside of this with the housing situation, with the interest rates as low as they are, with the money that's getting put into the shadow inventory. It's a very synthetic system. And the independence that you speak of is daily getting chipped away from the appraisers because we are the ones that are supposed to be on the front line sounding the alarm. And the mortgage control fraud is coming in from them taking away all of those little elements that we have that allow us to inform people, you know, ahead of time. 
So on the backside, that's going to be very, very detrimental to the economy. Just to get a little idea of how this actually happened, how were appraisers forced, basically, to hit numbers as opposed to giving the actual value of a home? From what I gather, a lot of predetermined values were pushed on appraisers before the appraisal was ever done. So when that assignment would come out, that predetermined value was there. So that lender pressure, it existed when that assignment was delivered. And that was, you know, an initial thing. Of course, the blacklisting, many, many of us have experienced that. Can you explain what blacklisting is? If you don't hit this number, if you don't do what we say, you will no longer get work. And that was a common practice. When I approached the folks at Countrywide here in my rural West Virginia market and explaining that their expectations in reality were two completely different things, they basically told me that that was my problem. There was nothing that I could do about it. And if I didn't like it, you know, they would find someone else. So how difficult was it financially to be an honest appraiser at the height of the fraud epidemic? Honest appraisers were completely blacklisted. The work is given to the number hitters. And it's the craziest thing I've ever seen because on one side you have the client saying, you know, we want the best. And on the other side, there's every corner cut that you could possibly imagine. It really wiped me out. Being an honest appraiser isn't going to make someone rich. Explain to me, I guess, if you will, the impact that it had on you. As a human being, you wake up in the morning, you go to work, you show up. What does that day look like knowing full well that the industry that you're in is literally propelling fraud. It's the engine for fraud. What does that look like? It just looks like a daily reminder that when I see those examples, that we can pull it, point it out and recognize it and point it out to other people and point it out to regulators. That's the best that we can do. And they try to paint it in a picture like they're beating us over the head and saying, you have to hit this value. It's not that. It is an extensive amount of pressure, lender overlays. The non-bank influence on, on the banking business has been very detrimental, I think, in the matter of the way that we run the business these days. They've managed somehow to now drive the train. At the same time, though, they don't have any skin in the game. And that is a problem. And that's like right there in front of people's faces to recognize while they're trying to figure out solutions, but it's not getting addressed. This brings up the Gresham's dynamic. A lot of bad people in this thing here, man. A lot of the worst. Talk about the Gresham's dynamic in this case. In this case, for what I have seen with Gresham's, I recognize it today, and I can easily point it out. And historically, Gresham's is where the people who didn't play right were actually rewarded. And 
they're still in business today. And that makes me very uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable and very weary of those bad actors. And we have to coalesce together. Gresham's is so embedded in the thread of now our system since the repeal of Glass-Steagall that what I see are a lot of firefighters running around putting out fires everywhere, problems. But there's nobody taking up, well, what are we going to do to stop these fires from happening? So we're just totally spinning our wheels at this moment. It is a very synthetic system. And because they've broken it out into so many fragmented pieces, it's very, very difficult to say it's fraud because it's been so fragmented. And that's the game that they play to hide fraud and to hide Greshams and to, you know, act like things are being on the up and up when they're really not. One of the most important reasons why we're doing this series is not just because we're trying to tell these stories. These stories were told eloquently in the con, and we have lots of good information about that. But one of the things that is vital here is for the regular people to get up in arms to pay attention, to drive the point home, to get the politicians and the legal professionals to take action. Tell me about your personal experience, the life stories here of the people that were impacted by this. This is the connecting points that the average voter, homeowner, person potentially buying a home might feel in this case. What is the real cost to people? I need people to ask more questions and not be so comfortable to accept just what they're told, to be more discerning in, you know, what they're doing, because this is the biggest investment that they're going to make. Hiring an independent appraiser gives an individual that advantage above anything. And we need to have people who really want to know the truth. And that's basically you know, where we're at. We are just not in an economy right now where truth seems to be the most important item. Now, what concerns me on the backside of this is that I don't want people to have to suffer what I suffered and so many other people suffered. We're trying to parlay some information that is very convoluted and complex in a manner that people can actually understand. Ask the questions, and I'd say that the biggest help that I could give people going into 2021, ask what kind of appraisal that you're getting when you purchase your home. Can you tell us about the personal tragedies that people that you've known have experienced for not understanding the information? My personal story? Whether it's your story or anybody in your circle, because I think what we're trying to gather here is the consequences. It's devastating, is it not? It is. It is the most heartbreaking, devastating thing I think I've ever seen. And we have a pandemic that we're dealing with right now where rent, you know, and payments, they've been given forbearance, but those days are going to come due. I'm deeply concerned, you know, with what we're going to be seeing on the backside of this. My last question, Lori, is what do you make of this rush to automation of the appraisal process? 
they're just digging a deeper hole. I'm a proponent of technology and it needs to be utilized, but they're doing it to benefit themselves. It has nothing whatsoever to do with benefiting consumers at all. And the systems that exist, they're not great. You know, they say they're great, that they are wonderful, but they do get hacked. That privacy that the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act allowed, that's where we're at today. And everyone's private banking, you know, information is not as perhaps safe as we think it is. Wells Fargo, I mean, just the number of data breaches that have existed. And again, it's taking that 50,000 degree view. Everybody's, you know, up in arms and worried about it, but no one is addressing what can we do to protect people. And that is, you know, something along the lines of a Glass-Steagall. The insurance guys don't need to be selling mortgages. The mortgage guys don't need to be selling insurance. Do you see what I mean? They've convoluted and they've blended and they've broken it down into these pieces that make the fraud hard to find. Everybody needs to get back to their specialty. And that's how we serve citizens. There's a note here that talked about how Cuomo, when he was New York's AG, helped in destroying the independence of appraisers because of WAMU's model that was in place. And then basically he helped nationalize that model. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. This is something actually that should terrify people. And I'm going to use the word terrify. The evolution of that New York AG's lawsuit has now created one of the largest conglomerate that has control fraud over appraisers, they hold our everything, everything from our software to our data resources. I mean, I could just go on and on. And there's something terribly wrong with this. You talk about mortgage control fraud, this is it. Because that is the company that Cuomo sued. And they were able to split and CoreLogic was able to evolve from that. And of course, they came in and bought up every appraiser tech application that you could ever imagine. And now every appraiser in the country is held at their mercy to a degree. Here's where it really gets good, though. They're taking our data. They're taking our verification, our expertise. They're repackaging it and they're selling it to create these automated systems. And, you know, Fannie and Freddie are taking data too. But the evolution of that case, it just blows my mind. That company is bigger than they ever were. They didn't get broken. They got bigger. And now they own every appraiser's well-being in their hands. Now, the irony of that is just beyond uncomfortable. Actually, one thing that we didn't talk too much about was Dodd-Frank and how in sort of at least its surface attempt to alleviate issues concerning 
appraisal fraud, it actually kind of helped institutionalize it in the form of the management companies. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Dodd-Frank was supposed to really drill down on that appraiser independence and give appraisers, you know, something to hang our hat on. You can't extort appraisers. You can't deny them work. But by the time all of that goes through the bureaucracy, it's watered down. And right now, we have literally, because of Dodd-Frank and because the unregulated players became regulated, we have an FTC antitrust case against one of the states because they stood up for appraisers independent. So a whole state agency now is being sued. It's been going on for a few years. We don't have the people in place. The laws exist. We don't have the people in place to uphold them and hold people accountable. When you watched end to end, you don't just do with the appraisal. You watch the people themselves have to live in your community. You watch the outcomes of this stuff. What do you see from the average person that was caught up in this fraud? What were the outcomes? Everybody didn't fall apart, but of those that did, what was it that really caused you to say, oh my God? What were the oh my God stories of pain and suffering? I saw a veteran gentleman lose his home and he was elderly suffered a lot of PTSD, and he tried to kill himself. So I saw blood, and that was absolutely, I just knew that we never needed to be in that position from any of it. It was so unnecessary, so unnecessary. With that, Lori, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been a pleasure, and I really appreciate it. We'll be joining with Michael Winston for the second part of this episode. Lori, thank you so much once again. I appreciate it immensely. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. You are listening to The New Untouchables, a podcast brought to you by a collaboration of the creators of the docuseries The Con and Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. Joining us now is Michael Winston, who was a countrywide executive whistleblower, one of the most powerful stories from the con. Michael's story is probably the most impactful of all of them. He was able to witness the countrywide scam from inside, and his story told to us today. Patrick, go ahead and lead us into this. Well, Michael Winston is just incredible 
parallelism to me. I had been introduced to Michael from some articles written by Matt Taibbi of Rolling Stone. And as I was trying to understand this big picture, I kept finding bits and pieces of the puzzle that were incorporated into the generic, I call it a cottage industry of media that was around the great financial crisis, but nobody was putting the full story together. And so I found out through Matt Taibbi's writings that Michael Winston had won a grand jury lawsuit against Countrywide, which then became Bank of America in the transition between what was happening in the predatory lending stages and sequencing to the meltdown of Wall Street in 2008. And right before that happened, Bank of America came in and purchased Countrywide. Well, in that process, Michael was a whistleblower, a whistleblower who had sweet access at Countrywide and brought a lawsuit against Countrywide for a lot of what constitutes what we discovered later as being the con. Unfortunately, in the process, like so many others, Steve, and this is really another part of the con that's almost impossible to believe, but there is corruption in the courts from a standpoint that the banks literally had influence in our judicial system at a level that none of us can comprehend. But that's a story that comes downstream. The place we want to understand and start with Michael is what he saw and what he learned at Countrywide when he actually was recruited to become what they called the gold standard to make sure that their outward-facing PR to financial publications was such that a man of his professionalism was what it was all cracked up to be. And as it turns out, it was anything but that. So, Michael, I would recommend from the very beginning with obviously considering your voice, just a kind of a comprehensive perspective of your experience. If I may, I'd like to read from some documents that recently introduced me, if that's okay. Please. I gave, if you can believe this, a speech a week ago Monday with this voice. I had a lot of trepidation about doing it. So here's how they introduced me. Before becoming one of the United States, highest profile whistleblowers connected to the financial services meltdown. I'm Michael Winston, spent 34 years working as a business leader, change agent, and organization strategist for some of America's most prestigious corporations. He served as an executive officer for Lockheed Corp, McDonnell Douglas, Motorola for 14 years, Merrill Lynch, and then Countrywide Financial. Michael was named best instructor at the University of Illinois, University of California, Irvine, and Pepperdine. And then it tells me what our new friend said, which is, my PhD was from the University of Illinois, and my master's was from Notre Dame, and I was sent by Lockheed as an unlimited occupation guide to both Stanford and Warden. And so, I had been recruited by many people. Actually, 
Nay, around the time that Israelite was recruiting me, but countrywide had gone for five years. And I thought, well, I'll help as much as I can. It'll be my last job anyway. But I turned down you, Packard, and I turned down a number of others that were also very promising. The year I joined Angelo Mozilla was Fortune Magazine's Executive of the Year. The company was one of the fastest moving stocks on Wall Street. And how they recruited me was to say they wanted me to build a Goldman Sachs on the Pacific. Well, I know a lot of guys from Goldman Sachs. I had previously been offered a job by Goldman Sachs. A childhood friend of mine was the president of Goldman Sachs. So they got my attention by saying Goldman Sachs on the Pacific. And I tried until I ran into unmistakable, irrefutable fraud. And of course, because I had worked for really at the gold companies, I thought, well, I'll tell the exact, they don't know about this. These guys are going off as sort of rebels, renegades. What, what I had seen was in such dissonance to their people, people, principles, and something else that they used to hide. And so I told Angelo what I had seen. I didn't know that that made me a mark, but apparently it did. And I also told Dave Sambo, the number two guy, and Drew Gissinger, the number three guy. And those people are not to be crossed. I could have left easily because I was a known entity in the largest corporations in the world. However, I had recruited six people, six people who used to work for me out of their companies. And all those people, you know, they all had kids. Their kids had to change school. They had to sell houses. Their kids had to make new friends. So I wasn't going to leave that But the abuse and the wrongdoing was just too much for me to bear. So not related to financial services, but Countrywide did everything on the cheap, and it, they were sort of bred to be corrupt. And so when a lot of people in the building in which my team was housed complained about toxicity in the air, I went to my boss. He was on vacation, so I went to her boss. Then I went to Angelo. We have a problem. People are getting sick here, and possibly 
if this is not treated, they might die in your building. We need to fix this. Anyway, without disclosing too much, I found out that they were telling me they were fixing it, but doing nothing. And so I called Galoship because people were getting sick. I was the ranking officer in this building, which housed 1,150 people. It's my responsibility. It's not my job. It's my responsibility as a human being. Oh, and something that I should add. Shortly before I called Galosha, I had a staff meeting in my countrywide office. In It was called the Tapo Canyon Building. And I was with maybe 10 people who worked for me. Some of them were waiting outside to access my office. And one or two was already there. Probably my assistant and secretary were already there, you know, handing out what we were going to review. While that happened, I heard a sound from above my head. I was sitting at the top of the table. I heard a sound from above my head. And then I felt like droplets falling on my head. Before I could move my eyes up to see what was falling, everybody in my office was getting sick. Someone said, are they trying to poison us? So I tried to stand up and lead my team out. My legs were rubber. I couldn't move. Now I had been an athlete in college and this. I couldn't walk. I couldn't take a step. And my assistant grabbed me from under the arms and said, we gotta get him out of here. Anyway, Countrywide didn't even respond to our complaint. And in court, many years later, they claimed I made the whole thing up until, of course, five people testified to being in the room at that time. What did the judge say? He said, I'm not interested in health issues. Michael, would you mind taking a moment to explain what the actual fraud was? Can you describe the countrywide model? that you stumbled onto. Can I read from a couple of pages? That'd be fine. Sure. But first of all, though I operated from within the human resources division, my role is as the organization integrator, bringing the strengths and opportunities from all the disparate divisions, operations, and teams to combine to a whole that is much greater than the sum of its parts. And with the exception of countrywide, Lockheed, McDonnell Douglas, Motorola, and Merrill Lynch 
follow through exponentially while I added up my function. I don't know if it was a direct cause and effect, but I had a huge impact on those organizations. So, when I saw people who told me later that they owned their homes outright and countrywide was bugging them, they were going to foreclose on them for failure to pay. Well, the reason, it's sort of like me in this house. I have a 9300 I bought it for cash. It would be like Countrywide coming to me and saying, we got to kick you out. You didn't make your payment for this month. That's because there is no payment. I own it outright. I saw them doing that a lot. They had such a power to intimidate that people said, hold on, I'll help you out. And when I got to meet the lead fraud and investigator who said, you know, the office supply that they need most in this company is white out because everybody's making up stories to get the property sold. So you had these people being intimidated, forced, strong-armed into buying homes they knew they couldn't afford. So in the con, you describe like your first episode with this when you happened upon the gentleman who had the fundum card, and that from there it led you to request of asking many questions, and that as you ask those questions, people seem to be less and less interested in answering them. When did it become clear that everything that's happening in there was intentional and not an accident of bad oversight or bad management? So you're talking with somebody who was concerned about what he saw, but given my upbringing, given the companies I've been to before, I thought, why will they, why do they keep selling properties people can't afford? Those mortgages are going to end up insolvent and on their front door. I never thought they, there wasn't securitizing, cross-selling. There was no such thing in the beginning. Do you guys understand that? It's sort of like, I thought, I didn't think I was selling on countrywide. I thought I was saving countrywide. This is why when they started, I don't know, I think I had about 300 people in the beginning, and it was 200 people, then 150, and it ended up with two. Now, it's not that I'm dim-witted or slow, but I had just never been exposed to retaliation in my life. And I thought, why retaliate against one person who's trying to save you? But Dan Angelo screaming in their ear that he doesn't want any bad loan to be on the books for more than one second. If it is, you're out of here. That's the kind of leadership that was provided at the top. Wow. So what you're telling us is, is that you've gone into these guys' offices and you're sitting there saying, hey, I've discovered this fiasco, man. I'm here to help you. And they're like, shut this man down. Get him out of here. 
quiet this guy. We don't want to hear that because we already know what's going on. Can't say it. We already know what's going on. You shut up. You go in your corner. Is that the essence? Yes. So with that in mind, as you parted ways with Countrywide, what was some of the things that if you were to tell people that were impacted by that time, what would be some of the things that you might tell them today? Obviously, the people that were impacted by Countrywide's fraud are so vast because they had tons of loans they processed, tons of this fraudulent behavior. What do you think you might tell them today? What would be your words to those people? Well, what I would tell them is that there are people who work every day 10 or 15 hours to try to get them to recognize their damages and try to get them paid for their damages. There are, and I know one personally, he sounds just like me. My case against Bank of America is finally exonerate the victims and have a judgment made against the culprits. So I work on that every day. I was scheduled to give testimony March 15th. However, that's when the coronavirus started, so it was all shut down. But I'm going to do this within four weeks now. And I have all the records behind me to prove it. So I think a rescue is on the way. And quite frankly, I needed motivation while taking six cancer surgeries. And an implicit promise to fix this is what kept me going. Michael, it's been a long journey for us. Me too. Well, I know, and that's what I'm referring to, Michael. When we first met and I started to understand your story, you come from this level of professionalism that I think that this country expects from the highest levels of operations, as you've established. And when you started to, in your senior role, to make the country, sorry, the country, that's kind of a funny slip, but the company, all of the disparate pieces work in unison to maximize the efficiencies for this operation. You had to ask questions. And as you started to ask questions, you started to discover that this entire huge multi-billion dollar company was something that it didn't appear to be to the outsiders who, quite frankly, the company had relied upon you to be able to project that perception of professionalism. Can you put into perspective for Steve and his audience what it's like to discover everything that's the opposite of what you were told it was, and then what do you do in that circumstance, and what did you meet with? I'll give you just a couple of points on that. My team became very disaffected, very disenchanted, and one of the guys, first name Jonathan, last name I remember, but he said, Michael, I'm embarrassed to say I work for a countrywide. And everybody chimed in. 
And I said, let's not think of ourselves as working for countrywide. Let's think of ourselves as working on countrywide. And we did. It, it gave us a new outlook because many of us had been strategy consultants in the past, like me. So if we could take an outside look, we could be more effective. And so that helped. But actually, when I realized a woman named Sharon Doyle, who had worked for me forever at Motorola, she came into work one day and all 10 of her director boards were fired out from underneath her. Now, Sharon is one of the best employees I've ever had. And one of the most, maybe the most productive I've ever had. And so I did confront my manager, Leora, and said, by what authority do you have to terminate Sharon's team? And she used all sorts of, I'm your, your boss, and if you say one more thing, I'll fire everybody around you. Just it was almost comedic to me. It was so sad. And, you know, my world had crashed, but what I was trying to do was fix. There were some really good people who wanted to make the right thing happen. I know that because as my team got smaller, the number of people who dropped by at 7 o'clock at night, 8 o'clock at night, got larger. They just waited until, you know, crying eyes left work and they rejoined me again. So I would say that my team, large or small, at Countrywide, did pound for pound as good work as any of the other teams I've had in four out of five top ten teams in the United States. Only countrywide was not. If they had let us do our thing, we would Their three Bs were people, fashion, principles. Those are the tenets upon which they said countrywide stands. I saw the worst human resource practices I'd ever seen in 2006. They had something like an 80% turnover rate. Now I'm saying 80, not 8. At Motorola, if we went over 5%, there was a meeting in the tower, but nobody was leaving Motorola because they did the right thing for the right reasons. Everybody wanted was heading for the door. And ironically, countrywide canceled when that happened. Our program called Retaining Talent. So, of course, they treated their people like crap. If they had a passion, it was the opposite of my philosophy. My philosophy in management, which has worked, is don't pay attention to shortcomings. Everybody has them. Build on strengths. Those are the things that provide sustainable competitive advantage 
What can you do that nobody else can do? That's the mode that you want. I'm speaking like a global head of strategy, which I was. That's the mode nobody can want. That mode. The pain was so unbearable that I did an award because I thought, well, if we win a court judgment, which we did, and we do, a jury verdict, then the board of directors will get rid of the guys who are running the place and at least maybe save some of the talented people who work there. I think very few wanted to defraud the public, but the ones who did were the ones at the top. So this all started at the top. This was not a bottom-up process at all. This was a top-down fraud. Countrywide likes to say it was just a few renegades at the bottom end. This comes from this material I've submitted to the court as well. Much heralded CEO Angelo Mazzello turned out to be the ultimate snake oil salesman. Alas, the world didn't realize this until going through much pain and the deterioration of the global economy. As an officer of the place, I felt it. I wanted to fix it. I felt it, and I tried to my best to fix it. But how do you deal with a situation like this? In a court of law, Angelo Mazzillo claimed he had never heard of me and doubts that he works there. He claimed he did not know me. Ted Matthews, my then lawyer, responded by playing a video in court in which Angelo referred to me by name several times. This included Angelo advising his top 110 officers to heed my wisdom about leadership and ethics. In the same courtroom later on, he would claim that he had never given me the hallowed countrywide gold-plated cufflinks given to special employees. He said he knew right away I was not countrywide material. After which I was then asked by my lawyer to pull out the countrywide cufflinks given to me by Angelo and to give them to the bailiff. I walked to the bailiff, handed him the cufflinks. Angelo had denied giving me. He then handed the cufflinks to the judge. This is going to be in the court record. Wow. I've never known people as corrupt as that. You know, my dad was a big guy about being principal. I follow his tenets. My son follows mine. My son is a counter-terrorist agent, and he's very highly regarded. And my daughter's a therapist, a clinical therapist. And now, as of a month ago, she has her own practice. After 10 years in the practice, my kids do the right thing. They've never done the wrong thing. And I'm sure their kids will do the right thing and never do the I don't know what Angelo's upbringing was or the people he attracted, but it's no place I would want to be. Wow. Patrick, Eric, any other thoughts? Just that 
thank goodness that Michael isn't countrywide material. Amen. <laughs> what a great one. That's one of the best compliments I've ever had. Indeed, indeed. But interestingly, I was promoted three times the first 13 months. So which part of that wasn't countrywide material? Michael, let me finalize this with you. Obviously, you've been through an awful lot, both personally and professionally. But you also got to experience and witness an awful lot. One of the key reasons why we're doing this addendum to the con series in particular is to get individuals motivated and ready to fight to bring about what we would like to consider a modern Pecora investigation to bring about a 1929-style investigation on these fraudsters. We don't want them to get away with it. We don't want them to be able to walk away and smile in their mansions. What would you have to say to average people that are just now picking up on this and trying to understand how they could take action? All I can say is they will be ecstatic a couple of months from now if the judge is not on the date. If the judge is a pay for hire kind of judge, then I will have lost all faith in the United States. But we have the right answers. We have the right attorneys. We are working. This is all I do. And we believe and we're going to advocate on behalf of seven United States counties, 25 million people. And I don't get a penny. We're seeking to have them pay. And we're expecting that when we win more counties, well, we've had overtures for another 17 counties. More counties will come and join us. The lawyers that I'm helping, they are getting paid if they win. I'm doing this because I believe in public service. That's why. Amazing. So with that, folks, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. It really means the world to me. This is an honor that I did not expect to be able to be a part of. So I want to thank both Eric and Patrick, of course, and you, Michael. Thank you so much. And Lori, who's not with us, I want to thank all of you for being a part of this. And this will take us into our next episode, number four of this mini-series. I really appreciate you. You really, truly are an untouchable. Thank you so much. The New Untouchables is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Roseanne Rabiola Miele and promotional artwork by Christina of Paradigms and Revolutions Design Group. The New Untouchables is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to The New Untouchables, please visit patreon.com slash realprogressives.